very much of what we read in the Bible is thought of as highly controversial, especially among people that we don't often see inside these walls. Among the things that skeptics often put their focus on is the presence of miracles and such claims of supernatural events in the Bible. Uh, for example, they, they don't believe in the walking on the water. They don't believe in the raising of the dead, just to name a couple. But there, there are many other events that are a major part of the Jewish history and the legacy of deliverance that God had established with his people. You think, for example, of the deliverance from Egypt, the, the ten plagues, the devastation of the land that was required for Pharaoh finally to yield. And then the crossing of the Red Sea as they passed through on dry land. You think of the, the battles that they won when they were vastly outnumbered, such as in the days of Gideon, when just a handful of men by comparison were victorious over a much larger enemy. You, you, you think of the, the, say, the accumulation of all of that and the impression it would have left on the Jews and their understanding of God's amazing and wonderful acts. And then you also think as we, I'm, I'm not skipping around, but we'll get back to this, that there are others who doubt that God answers prayer. Now you may see other skeptics who, who believe there may well be a God, but they don't believe that he's active in the world. They don't believe that he's involved in the affairs of, of our world. And you, you see others, especially brethren, who wouldn't say the same thing in so many words that they doubt that God is involved. But in times of difficulty, they don't seek God the way that they most obviously should. You, you think, for example, of some people that they, they don't um, continue in their attendance as they should and they start to become strangers around here and then upon checking on them they admit they've been going through some difficult times they admit that their faith weakened because of the those hardships they admit that they had stopped reading the Bible as they should and they had stopped praying and of course no wonder uh, God has not delivered them from those difficulties because they haven't even asked him. It didn't actually become a part of their instincts that something really important was missing here. And although they wouldn't say in so many words, I don't believe God is involved in our affairs, their actions are, are telling uh, that same kind of story. Now, I want to talk tonight uh, about a, a, a very important event in Jeremiah 21. But before we do that, I want to talk about one of these miraculous or supernatural events that God was involved in in the days of Hezekiah. So roughly around 700 years before Christ, the Assyrian Empire has taken the northern kingdom of Israel. And there have been, according to the Assyrian records, they claim that they took 46 fortified cities of Judah at, at the events that we see starting in Isaiah 36. And so the officer, Rabshakeh, has come to the gates of Jerusalem trying to encourage the people there to surrender and not have to face the difficulties of war. Well, I'm skipping a whole lot here, but in chapter 37, you notice the leadership of, of Hezekiah. 
and the example he leads here that uh, I'm not going to be able to read this, but just to summarize briefly, he humbled himself. He went to the Lord's house and he prayed for God to intervene. And beyond that, he ordered mourning throughout the land and he expected everyone to take this uh, very solemn occasion as seriously as he did because this would be the, the best way to show the, uh, the Lord that they were serious, expecting his deliverance. Now, <clears throat> it says in uh, Isaiah 37, verse 36, that the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 of the soldiers of the Assyrians. That is, it's as if they woke up and they were all dead. This was a, certainly a deliverance attributable only to God in his amazing supernatural power. Now, uh, skipping ahead several years here, there is another example that I want to call attention to from Jeremiah 21. This is the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, and we know from 2 Kings um, that he was uh, an evil man. He did uh, very wickedly in the sight of God. He was, uh, he was a vacillating type of leader. He wasn't much of a leader at all, actually. He reigned for about 11 years, and he was appointed himself by the king of Babylon. Now, about 588, now this would be very near the end of his reign, Babylon is beginning its siege of Jerusalem. And what, what's really going on here is that Egypt and Judah have begun to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, and now he's coming to enforce his reign there. Now, as uh, the siege begins, it's, it seems to be pretty obvious now what Jeremiah has been trying to get the people to understand is reality, and nobody can deny it. So in Jeremiah 21, verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Malchiah, now that would be one of his officials, Zephaniah, who's a priest, the son of Messiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Well, I want to talk tonight about some things we can observe from this request. Because there are, as we say, some people who don't bother to ask the Lord. There are other people who don't believe that the Lord can help them, etc. Here's a case where a man does come asking, but there are some things we can learn about it from a positive point of view, and then some other things that we don't admire at all. Let's start with the positive first, because not everything that's going on here is inappropriate. First of all, it's the realization by God's king here over the land that eventually all human resources will fail and only God can save. Now, that, now this is an attitude that each one of us need to have reinforced. Instead of trying to face your difficulties alone, you have to realize only God can save. And how, um, how amazing it is that we have a God who pledges to be so near whenever we need him. You think of the special benefits for the nation of, of Israel. Uh, and Moses spoke of this in Deuteronomy. What great nation is there that has a God so near that whenever we call upon him, he is ready to hear us? Um, he has also, as he says, uh, spoken to us out of the mountain of fire. And then I really like the way it's summed up in Psalm 147 that 
He has not dealt thus with any other nation, and regarding his ways, the other nations have not known them. This is a God that answers prayer, and we could multiply uh, many other passages and many other psalms besides the ones on the screen here, but this is a God that they expected to answer when they called, um, and that's the, the very purpose of relying on God in prayer, is they knew that he had promised to fulfill their needs. But then he also had, as we said, this, this legacy of deliverance. You think of uh, Psalm 108, verses 12 and 13. It, it's just entirely expected that God will tread down our foes. We shall do valiantly because of him. And then in Psalm 78, uh, how it's recounted the way that the nation of Israel or the nation of Egypt had been humbled through the plagues. It was obvious the hand of God was in that situation. And what a wonderful deliverer they had. From Hosea 14, at the end of, the, of that book there, the resolution of what has gone wrong in the northern kingdom there, that th they had been trusting in others to save them. They, and so one of the things that was expected here in this resolution is come with your words, pledging no more will we expect Assyria to deliver us because the, they had made idols out of their alliances with other nations and also not just Assyria, but also Egypt. And that was part of our, our backdrop in Jeremiah 21. But you think about how, what a great contrast it is between the false gods and the true God, how God pledges to be near. You think about the contest on Mount Carmel that Elijah had with the false prophets there. They started around midday and they carried on into the evening, cutting themselves, raving in, uh, in this desperate plea for their false gods to respond and they were mocked as they deserved it in that case there that their God was not anywhere to be found in fact he was no God at all so one of the the things that we ought to remember as we think about this that our resources eventually will prove inadequate and only God can save is stay near to him don't wait until the day of disaster to be near to God because that's where we ought to be all the time, before disaster, during disaster, turn to him again, and then after disaster, turn to him in thanksgiving. The Lord is a refuge, as he says in the prophet there. Now, there's something else we could uh, call out here is that there's maybe a benefit to the suffering is that we understand our inadequacy better. We understand how better to rely on God because of the things that we are going through. Now, you know, there, there are many people who don't um, profess any kind of belief in God until they go through something very difficult. You know, they say there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, I think there may be something like that going on in Jeremiah 21. We have someone embracing some 11th hour foxhole religion. But you see, if, there, if, if people try to point out or try to emphasize the non-existence of God because of people suffering, which is something that uh, is often claimed, that the suffering of people proves that God is not active or God is not there, etc. Well, on the other hand, most of the time, people are not willing to listen until they've been brought to their knees, until they've suffered a little bit, then sometimes things change. And God tries to reach out in other ways, and sometimes this is the only way that can penetrate the hard hearts. Um, unfortunately, it may come to that for a lot of people. It may well come to that for our nation. But Psalm 78, verse 34, when he smote them, 
Then they repented, and then they sought God earnestly. Now, there's also a pattern here that we can observe throughout the Old Testament, and just kind of trying to blend all of that up in a few words, this pattern of in this distress, when you call upon God, how appropriate it is to emphasize, we look to you, now please turn and look upon us and our distress and provide uh, the deliverance that we need. I think Psalm 25 makes this point, as you see it in uh, their verses 15 and 16. It says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Now turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Psalm 123, verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. That as we continue to look in God, in our reliance, until he turns to us in his kindness and provides the deliverance that we faithfully expect. Now, as we say, not everything about this impresses us at all. In fact, there's something about Zedekiah's request that really rings very hollow. Something really bothers me about the way that he's doing this here. Uh, For one thing, the invasion is imminent, as in Babylon is on the doorstep. So why, why now? Because Jeremiah has been trying to get through to him for years. And they wouldn't listen because they trusted other means to save themselves, or else they just simply didn't believe that it would come to this. Now, for one thing, well, just in passing, as uh, Jeremiah had been working there, it mentions in Ezekiel 21 that instead of responding to the preaching and the, and the message they had heard, they fortified Jerusalem. In other words, they doubled down, they dug in their heels, and they they thought even more that they could deliver themselves. And how familiar that sounds, even to people today. Now, the other things they tried to do, and even Hezekiah tried to do this himself, is to try to bribe their way out of trouble. They try to give uh, out of their uh, resources and their wealth, hoping to appease the enemy, and then that'll be the end of it. Hezekiah learned better but the other times the other kings did not. And as it says in Proverbs 11, verse 4, riches cannot deliver in the day of wrath. And you think of in um, the days of Ezekiel and Jeremiah as well, uh, chapter 7, verse 19, I like the way it says it there that in the day of trouble, in the day of wrath, they cast their silver or their gold into the streets. Why? Well, you can't fill your belly with it and you can't appease God's wrath with money anyway. And so the enemies are coming in to take that wealth. So, you know, having wealth and and lots of money is no assurance that you can avoid some kind of disaster. And yet most people today still rely on it. People throughout the ages have been deceived by the deceitfulness of riches. And even in the days of Hosea, as, uh, as it says there, one of the headwinds in trying to get through to these people, as he says in 12 verse 8, Uh, But Ephraim says, ah, but I am rich. First of all, if I'm rich, then clearly God is showing his favor on me. And second, I have the means and the wealth and the the resources I need. I don't have to make any changes. I'm relying on this to get me out of trouble. Well, it didn't work in in other eras, and it doesn't work anymore today either. 
Riches are not a sign of God's favor. And very often people are deceived by that same, uh, same misconception. Now, one of the other things that they did, besides relying on their own resources, is relying on, in, on their allies. And one of the great criticisms of Egypt was that although they had taken alliance money and, and pledged to help when the Jews needed it, is they actually never made any meaningful effort to help at all. And as it says in uh, one of the main themes of Lamentations 1, is how this, we are pictured this as here, the Jerusalem personified is suffering, and all the allies around have never made an effort to help. They didn't lift up their hands to do anything. In fact, most of the neighboring nations were glad when it happened. The allies were unreliable. And what a difficult lesson it was uh, for the Jews to learn. Zedekiah had been relying on Egypt to help. And Egypt, in fact, proved to be that broken reed, a, a staff that a person leans on and relies on, but it betrays, it breaks and pierces him instead of helping. They trusted other resources to their own failure. But then, now what we have out of Zedekiah is this very last ditch effort. The very last resort is let's ask God. Because, you know, so many times people hope for some other, some other way. There has to be something else, anything but God. You know, even people who believe that there's a need for morals to have a civilized society, they, they don't profess any kind of belief in God, but they, they try to profess, well, we, this all happened by natural processes, by survival of the fittest, and yet we, they try to impose some kind of moral thinking in spite of it. Uh, it doesn't work. There, there, there is no such thing. People... Uh, People find that this is very empty when it comes right down to it. And it reminds me of another king, 1 Kings 14, a case where the Jeroboam, the first king of the, northern, uh, of the northern tribes, had his son fall sick. And he had abandoned God many years ago. And as the prophet ends up telling him there, you cast God behind your back. You embraced idolatry. Why do you come asking him now to show his favor for you? Well, uh, that's an, an interesting occasion in that, in that chapter there, 1 Kings 14. But in so many ways, people in our era have cast God behind their back. As, in, as it says in Romans 1, that people that don't see fit to retain any knowledge of God. Um, and, then, and then in Nehemiah and then Ezekiel, a couple of passages that make a very similar expression, that you've cast God behind your back. And now, what, what is it that brings you back to his doorstep now? You're desperate. And now you call upon him because all these other resources have proven to be unusable. People often make idols out of human institutions. It doesn't have to be a bowing down to a literal image, but they trust in their army. They trust in their riches. They trust in their own ingenuity or something else. They trust in the, the power of their government. They believe in the courts. They believe in anything that... Uh, speaks up that it has some kind of precedence over what God has said and people make an idol out of almost anything. Now there's something else about this that bothers me. It's the, the way that he's uh, approaching the prophet here. It, he, says, he says this in a way that it's really missing something really important. Okay, It's as if he's asking for God's power with no acknowledgement that this would be undeserved and that he hasn't done anything to at least 
um, lend himself in a kind way to the Lord. It's this mindset, I need God's power. I'm not looking for grace. Now, you know, as we say, there's something missing here. Where's the repentance? Where's the commitment or the pledge of any kind to try to lead reforms in the nation? There's no acknowledgement that he's failed as a king, that he hasn't been listening to Jeremiah. And he's asking here, maybe there's some extra revelation you just haven't shared with me yet. Maybe the Lord has, maybe the Lord has something ready. If you just inquire, he'll have something very different from what you've been saying all this time. There's no acknowledgement of any of this. There's no pledge or any kind of interest in leading a repentance in the nation. Even Nineveh put sackcloth on when they were facing their doom in a way that it even moved the Lord to show compassion. Zedekiah doesn't even seem to view himself as needing God to relent from the judgment he's brought upon him. And it, but this is a very common kind of, 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 say, mindset that people have today that they want to focus on the goodness of God as if there's no strings attached to it that God has all of this, this uh, amazing, great blessings to share, but there's, there's nothing in return that he requires of us. And, and yet they forget that the goodness of God has a counterpart of severity. He doesn't seem to realize that what's happening here with Babylon is a reflection of the nation's condition and something that he himself has contributed to greatly. There's no consideration or introspection. How did we get to this point? Instead, he just comes with this mindless uh, request of the prophet. Perhaps God will just perform some amazing act and get us out of this trouble. But you see, as we talk about this uh, a moment ago, there's a, a lot of times people miss the point of suffering in the world. They try to use it as a proof that there's no God. And yet, as the Lord has says in Amos, that does disaster come upon a city unless I have brought it? But that's not the first reaction. That's not even the, the Lord's first response. He's indeed very long-suffering and even brings minor judgments before he brings disaster. And there's a series that's enumerated in Amos 4 that I think is useful in that way. It says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. I gave you lack of bread, and yet you didn't return to me. And he says, I withheld the rain and when there were still months left for the harvest. I... Uh, made it so that there was blight and mildew, that your gardens failed, hoping that it would stir some kind of uh, solemn thinking among the people of why is the Lord unfavorable toward us. He says, I led a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword. I made the stench of their camp go up into your nostrils, and yet you didn't return to me. And then even more severely in verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were plucked as a brand out of the burning, and yet you didn't return to me. You see, these minor tragedies ought to have stirred something, some kind of introspection, but unfortunately it didn't. And Judah is in the same condition here because hard-heartedness is not the time to use minor tragedies. And the hard-heartedness we see out of the king and out of the rest of the nation here requires measures that are much more severe. It says in 2 Kings 24, regarding this same time period, that Jerusalem, and starting with especially Manasseh, had filled the land with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. And 
Second Chronicles 36 is, has, in verse 16, one of those editorial comments that are so valuable as you read these historical books. It says that they kept mocking the messengers of God. They despised the wor their words, scoffing at the prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. The Lord said, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, they couldn't turn my wrath away. And so the devastation of what they all went through there is really summed up quite well in Lamentations. As you see in Lamentations 1, verse 20, that the rationale for all of this is, as is personified there, I have been very rebellious. And then the measures that are needed are uh, so devastating. Lamentations 2, verse 9, the gates have sunk into the ground, the bars are broken, the king and princes are among the nations, the law is no more, and the prophets find no vision from the Lord. These are measures that were so unnecessary if the, if the leadership and if the people had just turned to the Lord instead of being so stubborn and so uh, hard-hearted. It seems as if Zedekiah's approach here is, is like what you hear people say in a very flippant way, but it's like the very first occasion I could put my finger on here. It's like he's saying, I'm just praying for a miracle. And a lot of times people say that, and they don't really mean miracles as we would understand them from the Bible. But as, as you think about just, say, the, the very words that people use there, that's Zedekiah's mindset, that he's just praying that God will be, um, be willing to do one of his amazing and wondrous deeds. Uh, please bail us out with a miracle, but with no strings attached, please. We can't take that. Something else to, that bothers me about this is this mindset of, of just that expects God's response to the suffering just because we deserve it almost. It, it almost it seems as if it would be a surprise to Zedekiah if there was no such response on God's part. And yet, the, the inaction and the inattentiveness that Zedekiah has shown for years, nearly, I guess, nearly 10 years as a king now at this point, is quite shocking that he would have the brazen and boldness to come asking this question without at least humbling himself. This is not un uncommon even in our society today. Many people view God as the source of blessing, but they don't want to hear anything about requirements. Now, you know, it ought to be pretty obvious to such that any type of relationship is going to suffer when a commitment is expected to be on a one-way street. You see, if, if God has to jump at our beck and call, and every time there's something that we need, he must deliver instantly. Well, does that not make us more of the God than he is? It's as if God created us so he could serve us, and yet it's quite the other way around. Many people focus on their happiness and they, they try to justify their lifestyles by saying, after all, God wants me to be happy. You know, I don't find that verse in the Bible. God doesn't want you to be happy so much as he wants you to serve him. In fact, he wants you to be happy serving him. And indeed, you will with the right spirit. But you see, viewing God as simply the source of blessing but not requirement leads to his blessings being abused. As you see in uh, Jeremiah 7, that the prophet here goes through an enumeration of some of the major moral failures that the, that the land has suffered through all these years. He says, well, 
you, verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by, na by my name, and say, we are delivered, only, only to go on with these abominations. Well, where, where does this lead? Well, it leads to a horrifying place. Verse 31 of the same chapter, as he says, they built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. I believe there are three occasions in Jeremiah that use those similar words. When God's laws are violated, the consequences from them are inevitable. And as Hosea would say in Hosea 8 verse 7, they've been sowing the wind, they're going to reap the whirlwind. And as, uh, as we read in Galatians 6, that God is not mocked. And as a general principle, what a person sows is what a person's going to reap. And the same thing stands for the nation. Now, there's also a principle referred to in, in Proverbs 28 verse 9. If a man turns his ear away from hearing the words of the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And I can't help but assume that Zedekiah is in that same camp. Because what, what's going to happen here as a result is simply a reflection of the inattentiveness that the people have shown him. We might call this destruction by neglect. You, th you think of the, the other things Jeremiah has said that in uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 27, they've turned their back to me and not their face, but in the time of trouble they say, Arise and save us. Does that sound a little familiar? I think most people today might find it quite easy to fill the churches in the times of trouble, but then when it looks like the difficulties are over, they fill the bars and they fill the party rooms, carousing and going back only to return to the very same pleasures that were going on before. Jeremiah was told on three occasions, don't pray for these people. I'm, I can't look upon these people in a favorable way. Their outcome has been determined and I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to look upon them favorably in, in deliverance. And in Jeremiah 18, to re just to put the reflection of the verse we read from chapter 2, as they had turned to him their back and not their face, well, the Lord shows that same attention here. Jeremiah 18, verse 17, Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face and the day of their calamity. Now, there's a, there's a parable of sorts told in Isaiah 5 about a vine dresser who worked and tilled the ground. He prepared a hillside to have the pristine conditions for growing grapes. And yet they grew wild grapes. And so the judgment on, the, on there, it, you might think it's interesting. That it doesn't say that the result of it was that the, he went through with the tiller and he dug up all those vines. No, he didn't do that. It didn't say that he found elephants to go trample through it. He didn't do that either. He didn't say, I struck it with lightning and hailstones and, and things like that. No, he didn't do that. He says, I took away the hedge. I took away the wall. And I let nature take its course. Because this is a destruction by neglect, that, that it's like an acted out parable that God is emphasizing, you didn't turn to me when I spoke. Therefore, I'm not turning to you in your time of need. 
you're going to have to humble yourself first. And I think one of the great ways that this is really summed up is in Zechariah 7, verse 13, which I think really does refer to this history the Jews had of this problem. He says, as I called and they would not hear, so when they called, I would not hear. It's a destruction by neglect that you even see on a personal level in the life of King Saul. That as Saul had not shown attentiveness to the word of God so many times that he had failed to take very seriously what the prophet told him. And now at the, toward the end of his life, the Philistines threaten and Saul believes he can still inquire of God to answer him, to give him guidance. And, but he can't uh, expect any such thing. It says, God did not answer him, either by Urim or Thummim or by any of the prophets or by dreams or any other means, and how alone he felt. And ultimately, Samuel, who spoke to him on that occasion, told him, don't bother asking me. You've turned your back on God. This is the natural result of all of that. And it's a lesson for people today. And then fourthly, there's something about this that is obviously not very timely in Zedekiah's request. That is, he's procrastinated. Why, why now? Why, why wait till the 11th hour? Why wait till Babylon is on the very doorstep? And it's as if he, he, didn't, he simply didn't believe that this was going to happen or else he wasn't moved to act when it was timely enough. And you know, not everybody who, who fails to respond to the gospel does so because they don't believe it. Sometimes it's just because they haven't been moved enough to act. It hasn't penetrated their heart enough for them to realize their condition, to, to view it with the urgency that they need. Because one of the, the great tragedies is when a person doesn't call upon God when he's near, when there's opportunity, and when there's time to, to act. And you think about the general uh, principle referred to in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11, as the wise man says there, that because the sentence of an evil deed is not executed speedily, the hearts of the, of the wicked are fully set upon them for more evil. God's long-suffering ought to spur repentance, and that's the purpose of it. And yet, so many times people spurn these opportunities and they don't act upon them when they have the chance. Amos also talks about this same kind of attitude that sounds very much like our modern society. People, he says, woe to them who lie on beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. They sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but they're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And so therefore they should be among the first of those who go into exile. You see, when the prophet was trying to reach them, they were too busy, too busy with their partying. They were too busy with their comforts. And I'm afraid there are a lot of people today who are simply too comfortable to act when they have opportunity. But you see, there is no assurance of more time to repent. You see, mo most people have the attitude like the rich fool that Jesus spoke about in Luke 12. A man who thought he had his future all mapped out. He had many years of eating and drinking and making merry, and yet the Lord says, your life is required of you this night. And yet, as there's also so many others who haven't learned that lesson, the lesson referred to in James, that your life is but a vapor, and you need to make provisions 
for what will you do when that life has passed on from here? You don't have assurance of unlimited time to repent. So when you have that opportunity, you must seize it and you must act upon it. Delayed responses are devastating. And, and I think of the situation in, in the, with the ark in Genesis 7. And, you know, I'm not sure exactly how many people there were on earth. Of course, it doesn't tell us. Now, there may well have been up as much as a thousand years that had passed from creation. I don't know for sure. But you count the generations and you add up the, the ages of the patriarchs to the next son. And it could easily have been a thousand years. But even if it wasn't, how many people do you think lived in the days of Noah? And yet eight people were found, uh, were, were able to find favor in God's eyes and to be spared from that disaster. Perhaps a million maybe more if, if the long amount of time had passed but nevertheless whatever the number was there are people outside the ark as it says in Genesis 7 that God shut the door and of course it's obvious to us when God closes a door there is no expectation that we can simply get it open again when God closes no one can open and even though there may be all these millions perhaps who who beg and plead because now they're ready to do something because they had shirked the opportunity before, but now they take it seriously. I'm afraid that we don't have a pattern of God opening the door back up when that time has passed. And this was a difficult, painful lesson for Zedekiah to learn because this is a very important time for him. Now, he wasn't denied merely because he didn't ask in the right way. I'm afraid that this was a, a battle and an outcome that had been determined and in, had been brewing for quite some time. Now, here's the, the response the prophet makes here in Jeremiah 21. Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you were fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. You see, this is a bit inevitable because of the, the way the nation has failed to reform all these years. Jeremiah has been preaching and nobody has been taking him seriously. The nation and its king have failed to be serious. And as he says in Jeremiah 6, verse 16, the Lord says, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, Pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. As for my law, they have rejected it. You see, this has been brewing for quite a while. And these are people that are described as having eyes that see, but, well, eyes that see not and ears that don't hear. The prophets prophesy falsely the priests rule at the, at the direction of the people, and the people love to have it so. This is a critical time for, for Zedekiah, because nations are judged in time, 
souls are judged in eternity. The outcome of the city and the nation here has been determined. But there's still a soul, a precious soul in the eyes of God that is still at stake. Nevertheless, Zedekiah is still not serious. The siege, as it begins, we see Zedekiah still hasn't yielded anything. It has not moved him to act, not even to plea for God's forgiveness on him personally, in spite of seeing Babylon on his very doorstep. And for a little more background on just how dense this leader was, you might see chapter 37. Well, let's just make a few brief observations here uh, about similar failures that people make, and then we'll wrap this up. You see, a lot of people don't ask God because they don't assume he's able to do something for them, or it maybe doesn't even occur to them to ask. As we were saying, sometimes people go through very difficult times, and then when you see that their faith has weakened, and they admit, I haven't been praying, of all things. And yet, this ought not to ever happen among God's people. Jeremiah 32, verse 27, he asked the question, is anything too hard for me? And yet, a lot of people don't seem to even think, why not take this to God? He says, call upon me in the day of trouble. But you see, there even in the days of Jesus, even though he had uh, worked many miracles, he had taught and shown himself uh, to be the Messiah. Mark 5, verse 35, there's, this is the occasion when the ruler's daughter had died and people were weeping and they said, why trouble the teacher anymore? You know, th this is, it's too late now. It's too late for Jesus, is as if that's their attitude there. And even startlingly in John 11, as Mary and Martha were grieving on the occasion of Lazarus, they both had the instincts to say, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, and surely he could have prevented him from dying, but he certainly was capable of doing more than that. And even though they do seem to believe in a resurrection, they didn't seem to believe that this was even worth asking for. You know, is there anything too hard for God? It ought to build our faith. And in, even in one of the criticisms in James 4, verse 2, is that people who don't receive, he says, you didn't ask. Now, other times they didn't receive because they asked amiss, and they asked only to enhance their own pleasures, and there were other issues there. But one of the great criticisms is just even the failure to ask. And this ought never to be part of the instincts of the child of God. Now, just like Zedekiah, people often ask, but without any conviction to obey. Now, this is also very similar to the, the attitude of those in Jeremiah 42. Some of the ones after the city fell, they came asking Jeremiah, what do we do now? Whatever God says, that is what we will do. And they showed this very strong resolve to, to accept whatever God's answer was. But you'll see if, if you read the chapter there, their heart was in a very difficult or a very different place. And it's not unlike the ones who came to Ezekiel in captivity and asked him, should we uh, set up a, a place of worship here, it would seem. Uh, and then really the Lord says, I'm not going to be inquired of by you because you have idols in your hearts. First get the idols out of your hearts, then we can talk, if you will. And yet there are a lot of people today that have idols in their hearts. And you see, there are so many times that people have disqualified themselves from God's deliverance or from God's favor because they're hypocrites, because they, they don't actually intend to reform anything. They just want to ask with, with no strings attached, 
no uh, convictions behind it. And yet, don't expect any different treatment than what God promised to, to those ancient Jews. He says, I will hide my eyes from those of you whose hands are full of iniquity. There is an invalid worship, invalid prayer, and, and seeking God for his favor, and uh, asking God for his deliverance by those who delight in their abominations. First, take the idols out of your heart. Then you can approach God and, and expect him to answer. But then finally, there are others who only ask, seeking to justify themselves. And you see, there are times when people would ask the Lord for a sign, that is, for some kind of miracle. There are other times people ask for a miracle in a different way. And the ones who ask Jesus often asked him for a sign of, of sorts so that they could find some way to criticize it, some way to trap him or some way to discredit him. You see, a lot of times people aren't interested in seeking God for the right reasons. They're only really interested in justifying themselves. Many people study the Bible in this way. They look for some kind of loophole. They're looking for contradictions. They're looking for exceptions to the rule, and they're going to emphasize whatever that exception they think they found might be. They look for liberties, but they're not looking for regulation. You see, th this is the same kind of uh, people who came to the Lord asking him for his advice, for what would he have to say about uh, our obligations here in, uh, in paying tax money. He says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? I would shudder to think the Lord would ever look upon one of us who study the Bible looking for some kind of loophole, some kind of contradiction, something to justify the lifestyle that I already want. Don't put me to the test, you hypocrites, the Lord says. Or as the, the lawyer that was testing Jesus said, well, who is my neighbor? You know, it, it's as if it's, it should be entirely obvious to us. There's a, a totally different spirit the Lord expects when you come asking for his counsel. Instead of a person who comes looking for some kind of exception to the rule or some way to justify what I already believe. Well, I hope in some way that our study tonight has been useful to us, but I also hope that there are those who may need to respond to the gospel, that they'll take very seriously their condition. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not will be condemned. It's very critical to respond and to make that proper action while you have opportunity. Call upon him while he is near. Don't wait until disaster is on the doorstep. And then, but then again, there are others who have done this and they've turned away from the Lord. And just remember, if you turn to him, your back and not your face. Don't come expecting him to answer your beck and call with no strings attached, no repentance, no pledge for reforms. If there may be some way that we can help you, please come while we stand and sing.